This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 55, The Migration Period of Europe. Let's start our journey this week by looking at the map of Europe in the year 300 and summarising what was going on. We know that by this time those Celtic peoples who had not had their lands annexed by the Roman Empire were pushed into the far north of Britannia and the island of Hibernia, which we know today as Ireland. Our special episode on the Picts covers this period of history in the north of Great Britain. We also spoke more widely of the Celts, particularly before this period, during episode 53. On the continent, the Roman Empire had reached roughly the area of the Rhine and the Danube, so there was a line drawn across Europe from the northwest to the southeast, from the North Sea to the Black Sea. To the south of the line, it was Roman territory. To the north, we find that most of the peoples were of Germanic origin. Goths had migrated southwards from the Baltic lands to the lands of the modern countries of Romania, Moldova and Ukraine. The Marcomanni, who lent their name to the second century conflicts between the Romans and the Germans, were still present around the lands of the modern Czech and Slovak republics. Franks were occupying lands of the modern Netherlands. There were very many other known and distinct Germanic tribes, a great many we have mentioned in previous episodes. Over the course of the next 100 years, there were three significant political events worth talking about in relation to today's episode. Firstly, there was a significant shift in the relationship between the eastern and western halves of the Roman Empire, as the two halves that had been set up by Diocletian towards the end of the 3rd century started to behave politically independent from one another during the 4th century. Emperors from one half of the empire had to request assistance from the emperor in the other half, which didn't need to happen when there was one emperor or a senior emperor of many. This particular shift became critical during the 4th century. The second significant event was the relationship between the Western Romans and the Germanic tribe of the Franks. It once again stems from an event in the 3rd century where the Romans signed a treaty with the Franks which helped to subdue Frankish raids on Roman territory at the time. Frankish nobles would learn the art of battle alongside the Roman legions and Franks would peacefully settle Roman lands. There was an unusual mutual respect. Some Frankish nobles could even boast a kind of dual nationality, being officially both Frankish and a Roman citizen simultaneously. The other significant event was the story of last week's episode, where the Huns 
forced both the Germanic and steppe peoples across the Roman border, and the Romans were forced into accepting Gothic residents in their lands. It was similar to the Frankish integration, but something done in a much more aggressive manner. So the Roman Empire in 400 BCE was showing the signs of the dramatic collapse that we saw in the 5th century, as described in episode 50. The Hunnic expansion really made a huge impact on migration. Previous to the Hunnic expansion, migration of tribes was much more organic with a nomadic movement from one area to the adjacent area. The Goths descended southwards along the continent at an inoffensive pace. After the Hunnic invasion, the migrations were much more considerable and conspicuous. The Invasion of the Huns Now, please don't worry, we will have an episode dedicated to the Huns. Though it is arguable that the Huns were the catalyst for the spread of the embryonic cultures of the modern nations of Western Europe and for the rapid decline of the Western Roman Empire. One of the first cultures that we can document as displaced by the Huns were the Alans. The Alans were quite intriguing as a culture. The Alans were people of the steppe based in and around the Caucasus. This is also the area of the world where it is speculated that the original Achaemenid Persians migrated southwards from before settling at Persis during the previous millennium. It would be fair to think that the Alans originally observed a branch of Zoroastrianism as a consequence of their geographical origin. The ancient people of the Caucasus are described as Indo-Iranians because their ancestors represent the branch of Proto-Indo-Europeans who migrated to the east and the south into the lands of the Iranian Plateau and the Indus Valley. The name Indo-Iranian is synonymous with the term Aryan and this is the same as the word Alan but in a different dialect. So here we can see the ancient connections of this steppe culture which was about to be swept up and taken on the most incredible nomadic migration of all the cultures of this historical period. Based on the northeastern banks of the Black Sea, the Huns pushed the Alans westwards and in the direction of the territory of the Sarmatians, who as a steppe culture were quite closely related to the Alans. It is difficult for us to work out the exact relationship of the Sarmatians and the Alans to the very ancient culture of the Scythians. It might be that the Scythians were the ancestral Pontic steppe culture to all of these steppe peoples. We do know that they were more closely related to each other than they were to anybody else. And we'll be taking a closer look at the Scythians in their own episode too. Sarmatian territory had already been occupied by Goths who migrated southeastwards from the area of the Vistula and integrated themselves with the Sarmatians to become a unique Germano steppe culture. This Gothic steppe culture of Sarmatia were called the Gruetungi 
and were noted for being the Gothic culture with a considerable cavalry that contributed heavily to the barbarian victory at the Battle of Adrianople in 378. The Groitungi are considered to be ancestral to the Ostrogoths. When the Alans headed west, the Huns kept pushing westwards into the lands of the Groitungi and across their western border at the Dniester River. Across the river were the lands of the Tervingi, with its commanders and rulers such as Athenaric and Fritigan. They were also of Gothic origin and the ancestors to the Visigoths. We learned last week of the impact this had when all of these barbarian cultures were squashed up together at the Roman frontier, causing Fritigan to appeal to the Eastern Roman Empire for refuge from the Huns. The relationship between the Tervingi and the Romans broke down, however, and all of the barbarian tribes started raiding Roman territory. The Romans could not prevent the Tervingi settling their lands and they were allowed to assimilate. From now on, we can refer to these people as the Visigoths. One of the most well-known of the early Visigoths was their king Alaric who came of age in this new Visigothic territory within the Roman Empire and served under the more favourable Roman Emperor Theodosius. Before feeling somewhat disenfranchised by the Roman Empire and leading the Visigoths on campaigns within the Empire, with the highlight being the Visigothic sacking of Rome in 410, which was led by Alaric himself and created shockwaves throughout the Roman Empire. The Huns continued to plough westwards after the Battle of Adrianople in 378. The Ostrogoths had been subjugated and the Visigoths had been pushed over the Roman border as we already know. The Alans continued westwards into the lands of other Germanic tribes who were to the west of the Gothic territories. So we're referencing the lands of modern Germany now. Germanic tribes occupying these territories would include the Burgundians, the Lombards, the Suevi and the Vandals. The Huns would very dramatically squeeze all of these people westwards again during the first decade of the 400s, with those who stayed being consumed by the Huns and those who didn't spilling over the Rhine into the Gallic territories of the Romans in around the year 406, just to the direct south of the lands of the Franks. There were much wider implications to the Rhine crossing by so many people. The Romans would have to address this problem despite the Visigoths under Alaric sizing up for their own raids on the Italian peninsula as described earlier. Add to this that there was a new wave of Saxon raids on the coasts of Britannia and the Western Roman Empire was truly in turmoil. The Saxons were yet another Germanic tribe who were more closely connected to the Franks due to their origins being in the northwest of the lands of modern Germany, facing out into the North Sea. The Franks and the Saxons were maybe the instigators of that great medieval aspect of raiding cultures of the lands around the North Sea. The Romans in Britannia had been used to repelling these raids, but now their priorities lay elsewhere. 
after the Roman governor in Britannia declared himself as Constantine III, Emperor of the Western Roman Empire, he went on his own adventures back on the continent, and Britannia was forgotten and left to the mercy of the raiding Saxons. Those many Germanic tribes who crossed the Rhine in 406 went on to sack many of Gaul's great cities. The Western Roman Emperor was the young son of Theodosius called Honorius and his great military commander was Stilicho. Despite everything that Stilicho had done for Western Rome, his part Vandal heritage may have been a factor when the chaos of the Germanic raids in Gaul were blamed on him. Stilicho was the only man likely to be able to prevent Rome from being sacked by the Visigoths in 410, but he was no longer alive, executed at the command of Honorius. Once Gaul was laid to waste, the Germans headed south into the lands of Hispania and began to settle. Britannia the Romans are thought to have abandoned Britain in 410 when British statesmen appealed to Emperor Honorius to protect Britannia from raids and the famous text called the Rescript of Honorius tells Britain quite bluntly that they must now protect themselves. However, it does appear that this wasn't as sudden as stories suggest and that the Roman governance weakened in Britannia for a generation with more Pictish and Scotty raids of the lands of the modern country of England taking place. The Scotti were originally based on the island of Hibernia, which we know today as Ireland, while the Picts were in the Scottish Highlands. The Celtic Britons, some of whom had their bloodlines mixed with Roman settlers, would begin to reorganise themselves in the absence of Roman magistrates in their lands. Small kingdoms would begin to establish their identities, particularly in the west and the north. However, the indigenous peoples were powerless to prevent Germanic tribes settling the south and east of Britannia. One of the earliest records of a Saxon kingdom on Britannia is Wessex, on the south coast from early in the 6th century. Another major group of Germanic tribes who settled Britannia after the disappearance of the Romans were the Angles, who originated from the borderlands of the modern countries of Germany and Denmark. It is because of these two major Germanic migrations that we call the early medieval period of Britannia the Anglo-Saxon period. The term Anglo-Saxons refers distinctly to the new Germanic culture of Britannia, which emerged after the migrations of the Angles and the Saxons. Although we are also confident that Jutes from the northern portion of modern Denmark also settled parts of southern Britain, and we also suspect that some Frisians also made the journey. The only North Sea Germanic peoples who didn't seem to travel across the North Sea were the Franks, who had other ideas about expansion. Gaul We learned of how the Vandals and the Swebi had been pushed into Gaul in around 406 and we also learned that they raided Gaul and moved on to Hispania fairly quickly. 
The Western Roman dominance of Gaul had diminished significantly while they were defending their heartlands from Visigothic invasions in the Italian peninsula itself. The Hunnic expansion was still pressurising those societies within the area of the modern country of Germany and we can see that the Burgundians took control of the lands of the Upper Rhine and Rhone rivers centred around the lands of the modern country of Switzerland. The Frankish peoples who lived within Roman territory during the 4th century were referred to as the Salians. And when Roman influence in this area of Europe started to wane during the 5th century, the Franks began to expand and migrate from their lands on the North Sea coast of the modern country of the Netherlands to the lands of modern Belgium and the north coast of France, where the English Channel meets the North Sea. The 6th century Austrasian bishop and historian Gregory of Tours describes Claudio as the Frankish king responsible for the expansion. The Franks were still quite tribal during this period, with Claudio being just one Frankish king whom Gregory of Tours believed to be a descendant of the Salian Franks who worked alongside the Romans during the 4th century. During episode 50, we learned of the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, but we also mentioned that there was still a portion of territory on the northern coast of Gaul that was still governed by Roman governors, despite the barbarian Odoacer taking control of the Italian peninsula. This Gallic area has been referred to as the Kingdom of Soissons, and it was the last remnants of Western Roman rule. The monarch of the Kingdom of Soissons was King Siagrius. Soissons may have prospered for many years after the collapse of the rest of the Western Roman lands, had it not been for a change of fortunes in the Frankish world. A Frankish ruler called Kilderic died in 481 and he was succeeded by his son Clovis, who was a very significant figure in French history. He is regarded as the first French king. The reason why Clovis is regarded as the first French king is because he is reported to be the first man to unite the Frankish tribes under one rule. And it was thanks to this that the Franks were able to take on Siagrius and defeat him at the Battle of Soissons in 486. Siagrius attempted to flee to the Visigothic kingdom in southern Gaul, but the Visigoths gave him up to Clovis, and he is suggested to have died as a Frankish captive. So the Franks would have control of a large territory equivalent to the northern portion of Gaul, and going back across the Rhine to the lands of their origin. This kingdom of the Franks, otherwise referred to in history as Francia, would be very important in the development of the map of Europe that we know today. Hispania The impact of the migration period on Hispania is considerable. As we have mentioned before, after the Germanic tribes ravaged Gaul, they would move on to Hispania. As with Britannia and Gaul, the Romans were no longer in any position to defend anything other than their own heartlands, under threat from the Huns and the Visigoths. The Vandals besieged the Gallic city of Tolosa, which is the modern French city of Toulouse. 
the city was able to resist the siege and so the Vandals moved on. Despite Roman absence from Gaul when it was being ravaged by the tribes who crossed the Rhine in 406, the stubborn resistance of Tolosa was viewed with admiration by contemporaries. It would not be long before the Visigoths would head west and they would occupy Tolosa until the Romans forced them back out. During the course of the 410s, the Visigoths assisted the Romans with the defence of the Roman lands against the tribes who crossed the Rhine, and so Honorius rewarded them by granting them the Roman city of Tolosa and all the lands of the lower Garonne River and its outlet into the Bay of Biscay, which would have been called the Sea of the Galicians by the Romans. This was the first Visigothic kingdom. While all of this was going on in Gaul, the tribes who crossed the Rhine in 406 had migrated to Hispania, and they had settled, taking land away from the Romans that had been in Roman possession throughout the years of the Roman Empire. The Alans, that originated in the Caucasus, were now in a totally different part of the world, thanks to the wave of movement that had been taking place over the last couple of generations. The Suebi settled in the west of the Iberian Peninsula, just to the south of the Roman province of Galicia. Galicia itself was occupied by Hastingi Vandals, who can be distinguished from the Silingi Vandals, who headed to the far south of Hispania, settling the Roman province of Baetica. Now this has suddenly become quite confusing, so let's summarise where we are in the year 410. The Visigoths were sacking Rome and hadn't yet moved into Gaul and Tolosa. Britannia had been abandoned by Constantine III, who had crossed into Gaul to deal with the barbarian migrations across the Rhine and challenged the authority of the Roman Emperor Honorius. The barbarians had moved onto Hispania and settled. The Iberian Peninsula is in the shape of a square, so let's look at it as if it's a phone keypad with the number 1 in the top left and the number 9 in the bottom right. Land entry into Hispania is from Gaul, where the number 3 would be. The Silingi Vandals went to the far south where the Strait of Gibraltar is, at the area of number 8 on the keypad. The kingdom of the Alans surrounded that Silingi Vandal territory in a crescent from number 7 through the number 5 and around to number 9. The Suebi settled roughly the area of number 4, and the Hastingi Vandals settled around the number 1. We can refer to this period as the Germanic invasion of Hispania, even though the Alans were actually from the steppe. The Visigoths supported the Romans in their defiance of this Germanic invasion, and this is partly how they earned their Visigothic kingdom on the Garonne in southern Gaul. The Visigoths represented the Romans and they invaded the lands of the Alans and the Vandals, causing significant devastation. The Suebi decided to apply a more diplomatic approach by turning against their fellow barbarians and doing a deal with the Romans. 
and this worked in their favour quite nicely. The climax would be the Battle of the Nervasos Mountains, where the Suebi, allied with the Western Romans, took on an alliance of the Vandals and Alans and were victorious. This caused a sequence of events which resulted in the Suebi being in control of most of the western half of the Iberian Peninsula by the year 430, as the Vandal-Alan alliance crossed into North Africa to take control of the Roman lands of Mauritania, which we discussed in episode 50. Tensions still existed between the unlikely Suebi and Roman Iberian neighbours. As we know, the Western Romans weakened throughout the 5th century, so the Visigoths took control of the Roman lands in Hispania and squeezed the Suebi back towards Galicia. In the permanent absence of the Romans, the Visigoths would now consume former Roman lands in their own kingdom, making the Visigothic kingdom briefly second only to the Byzantine Empire in terms of size in Europe. Italy We know that Italy fell in 476, but we must also track the progress of the Goths who migrated to the lands of the Sarmatians before the westward expansion of the Huns in the 4th century. They were based on the northern banks of the Black Sea and the Huns forced many of them west across the Dniester River into the land of their cousins, the ancestors to the Visigoths. These were the Groitungi, whose cavalry would assure Gothic victory at the Battle of Adrianople, and the Groitungi were ancestral to the Ostrogoths. The Ostrogoths could not flourish until the demise of the Hunnic Empire in Europe during the 450s. The Western Roman Emperor would allow the Ostrogoths to settle the lands of Pannonia in return for their military support. The Romans tried to demonstrate their superiority over the Ostrogoths, but the Ostrogoths certainly did not see themselves as subject to either the Western Roman or Eastern Roman empires. They would expand on their given realm and become a significant player in European politics very quickly. We told the story of how the barbarian soldier Odoacha, possibly of Gothic descent himself, was able to take control of the Italian peninsula from the last Roman emperor in 476. So the story of post-Roman Italy is initially the story of Odoacha. To take the original Roman heartlands away from the Romans without a huge end battle may be a surprise, but when we consider that people of Germanic origin were playing important roles within the Roman Empire throughout the 5th century, this could be seen as more of an integration than an invasion. We know that Odoacer made the suggestion to the Eastern Roman Emperor Zeno that he would rule Italy as a subject nation to Eastern Rome. And Zeno was comfortable with this because he disliked the outgoing regime of Western Rome because they usurped the Western Roman throne anyway. In fact, Odoacer ruled Italy as well as any Roman during the 5th century 
He was able to subdue the Vandals in Sicily for the first time in over 35 years when he showed loyalty to the Roman Senate while continuing to legislate his kingdom, utilising the Roman structure. Odoacer, by all accounts, was an excellent ruler. He looked after his people, showed religious tolerance and enhanced the lives of his senators to make them believe that they were better off without a traditional Roman emperor. Militarily, the Kingdom of Italy was successful and Odoacer increased his original territory to include Dalmatia. Odoacer's biggest failing was that he was too successful and this worried the Eastern Roman Emperor Zeno, who once favoured him and now feared him. Zeno would approach the Ostrogothic King Theodoric and encourage him to take Odoacer on. There wasn't a lot of love lost between Theodoric and Zeno, but Zeno couldn't afford to not get one of Theodoric or Odoacer onto his side. Zeno himself would not actually live long enough to see the ultimate outcome of the hostilities between Theodoric and Odoacer. Theodoric and the Ostrogoths would achieve early victories within Odoacer's territory until Odoacer started turning his fortunes around successfully fighting back. Theodoric was able to appeal to the Visigoths for help and this helped to curb Odoacer's progress. The two kings agreed to come to an arrangement where they could split the lands and look forward, but Theodoric betrayed Odoacer and killed him at an official banquet before slaughtering a number of Odoacer's prominent statesmen. Theodoric had successfully taken Italy by force and cunning. So by the year 500, the Ostrogothic kingdom occupied the Italian peninsula, plus their original land centred around the border between modern Austria and Hungary, as well as the lands of Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina to the south, which was previously the Roman province of Dalmatia. Theodoric ruled with the same tolerant capability as Odoacer had done, and continuing to keep the Roman aristocracy within their realm appeased. The Eastern Roman Empire never really viewed Italy as something other than the homeland and origin of their culture, and therefore it should always be subject, to some degree, to Constantinople. So although it was being governed by another culture, it would always be with the blessing of Constantinople. The Eastern Roman Empire saw the lands of North Africa, governed by the Vandals from Carthage, as lost Roman lands, and felt justified in attempting to reclaim them. So in 533, Emperor Justinian sent his armies to successfully defeat the Vandals and take their North African lands. A dispute then arose between the new Orthrogothic king Theodahad and Justinian after Theodahad had executed the daughter of Theodoric the Great who deposed Odoacer. Theodoric's daughter was called Amala Swinter and she was acting as regent for her infant son until he died, forcing Amala Swinter to nominate Theodahad as the Ostrogothic successor. When Theodahad executed Amalus Winter, 
This would give the Roman Emperor Justinian every cause to declare war on Theodahad and potentially reclaim Italian lands into the Eastern Roman Empire. Justinian was powerful enough to be able to push the Ostrogoths out of the Italian peninsula from the south and so Rome was brought back into Roman territory for the first time in over 60 years. The Ostrogoths would attempt to fight back but the mighty power of the Eastern Roman Empire was too much and by 553 the Ostrogothic Kingdom had been eliminated from the map with the Eastern Roman Empire now in control of Italy. Justinian clearly believed that he could restore former Roman glory and was only too happy to become involved in a civil dispute between the Visigoths in Hispania, which resulted in him becoming militarily involved and establishing a Roman province called Spania, centred on the city of Cartagena. Emperor Justinian died in 565, having restored Roman dominance of the Mediterranean, but without their historical dominance of Hispania and their occupation of Gaul and Britannia. It is after the death of Justinian that a non-European emergence of power would once again have a knock-on effect on the Roman Empire, which strangely enough is where we started this episode with the expansion of the Huns. A Turkic group of peoples had forced another steppe culture westwards, and this time it was the Avars who were the steppe culture, and they may have been forced west out of the Caucasus, where they would settle Pannonia. Pannonia was the land of the Lombards, and so the Lombards decided to invade Italian lands, and such was the devastation caused to Italy, thanks to the protracted wars between the Romans and the Ostrogoths, that the Romans didn't have the resources to resist the Lombards, and so the Lombards were able to establish their own kingdom in various regions of the Italian peninsula. This is pretty much where we are going to leave our European story, now for Volume 3. The year is around 570, almost 100 years after the fall of Western Rome. So what do we have to look forward to in Volume 4, which will start later this year? We'll be taking a closer look at the Italian peninsula and tracking more closely the story of Ostrogothic struggles with Justinian and the Lombardic Kingdom. We'll also take a closer look at the rule of the Visigoths in Spain. We shall take a closer look at the development of the Anglo-Saxon culture in England. And also the Frankish kingdoms and how they flourished through their Merovingian and Carolingian periods. For now, we're going to move the centre of our focus northeastwards and towards the cultures of the steppe. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Um, quite a complex episode and uh, I hope you was able to follow it. And um, yeah, a lot of different cultures moving in a lot of different directions and stumbling across a lot of different political struggles and uh, very, very difficult to tell the story of. But hopefully you did get something out of that. And uh, also we can see the embryonic stages of some of the modern countries 
of Europe as well. So that's uh, that's very interesting to look at that. And then hopefully, really, it just sort of sets us up for volume four nicely. Listener messages. Let's uh, read some out. We've got one here from Jeff, who, who's put, Hey, Chris, stumbled on your podcast, History of the World. Just what I was looking for, my cup of tea. English reference, I'm American. Finally, got out of the ancient Paleolithic, first 15 casts, very interesting, but way, way, way too many homo this and Ian's that. Way too much for anybody to keep straight. Followed it enough to get me to where I am now. Now things are picking up. Keep up with the good work I'm following. On a side note, I don't have a problem with the accent, but some things need to be pronounced properly. It is Homo sapiens with a long A, not sapiens. It is Neanderthals with a th and not Neanderthals. Just an American thing. Be good and keep going. Jeff. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. Um, it's always going to be a bone of contention, isn't it? The, the pronunciation thing. Um, a lot of people accuse me of eccentric pronunciation. What I actually do, I tend to... Um, with a lot of the words, I tend to look at how they're pronounced by um, by people who, who actually are in the know, you know, people who actually work within the field. So probably the best place um, to um, investigate how other people pronounce words. Um, one of the one of the best sites I use is called Uglish, where you can actually put a word in and, you know, often with. Uh, the names of different societies in history, you get uh, university lecturers and the alike will tell you how it's pronounced. Often when it comes to, um, I've been accused of um, eccentric pronunciation of uh, maybe Roman emperors' names or, or, or that kind of thing. It's really because I'm trying to honour the Latin pronunciation of that word, and but sometimes it can it can come out very strange. So, like for for example, we we would believe that Trajan was probably actually called Trajan, and um, you know Hadrian would have been called Adrian. And it's just the, the difference in pronunciation, but I, I don't want to get too far off the beaten track. So, for example, Julius Caesar is probably always going to be called Julius Caesar, even though his his Latin name is probably more closely Julius uh, Kaiser. So, uh, but it, I don't think it does to completely overhaul the pronunciation of Julius Caesar in, a, in an English spoken podcast but certainly some of the names such as I don't mind calling Gratian uh, Gratian because I think that would be more closely um, linked to how you would probably pronounce his name and and Gratian probably isn't the most famous Roman emperor is he so um, but a very interesting discussion and the Neanderthal thing is is also very interesting um, certainly as a uh, as a kid growing up they were always called Neanderthals and the rev- the revision to calling them Neanderthals is is more of a modern thing it's I think scholars have decided that that, that is the correct way to pronounce it and 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 there's a difference really I think Homo sapiens and Homo sapiens is is very much an Atlantic thing it tends to be Homo sapiens on the American side and Homo sapiens on on the British side so but interesting always interesting discussion and and I think whatever I say I'm always going to come under some 
some form of criticism or other. So, but thanks for the email, Jeff. It's very kind of you to write in. John Zamit has written in and put, Hi Chris, I recently found your podcasts uh, on the history of the world and wanted to tell you how much I'm enjoying them. I, I live in Inverloch in Victoria, Australia, and because I often drive long distances for various reasons, I have developed a habit of listening to history-based podcasts because I have been interested in history since I was a kid at school. I want to say to you that I have great respect for the amount of time, effort and research that you have put into your podcast. Kudos to you. I also appreciate your clear method of explanation and love your Essex accent. As I have only listened to seven or eight of your podcasts, I look forward to working my way through all the rest of them. Keep up the good work, Chris. Best wishes, John Zamet. Well, I, th- I think the the sad thing about that message is he, he may not hear me read that out for some time because of uh, because of how, how far behind he is. Um, but uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe he'll choose to listen to the end of this week's podcast just to see if his name was mentioned. So if so if you're listening, John. Uh, thank you for the email. Olaf Larsson has written in and put, Hi Chris, a listener from Gothenburg, Sweden here. How fantastic after we've been like sort of licking it up with the Goths in the last week or two. That's wonderful. I recently discovered your podcast and made it through volume one. I just wanted to let you know that I think it is great so far and that you are doing a really good job speaking at just the right pace and making clear references to previous episodes when needed. Keep up the good work. Best regards, Olaf. You know, when I receive all of your messages, um, the what you tell me, it sort of goes in and I think it sticks in there, you know, and, and I probably have revised my way of doing the podcast based a lot on what the listeners are saying to me. So these messages that you send me are, are tr- truly of great value and I, I respect and appreciate them. So thank you and, and keep them coming. It's always of great value to the podcast. I, I know I say it every week, but it's always of great value when... Uh, you rate and review the podcast and uh, wherever you listen around the world, you can rate and review it on as many different uh, podcasting platforms as, as you wish to do so. There's a, a great long list of them on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. Um, if you go to the, I think it's called the Listen tab. Look, I've got my mind's gone a blank. Let's have a look. Uh, yes, it's called Listen. And there's a great long list of places that you can actually tune into the History of the World podcast there. And there are a great many places where you can rate and review, push it up the rankings, subscribe to it wherever you like. You know, it's a, it's of great help. It's just a, a numbers game, really. And uh, the more stars, the more ratings and the more subscriptions that you do, the stronger the podcast can become. Now, if you'd like to do more for the podcast, um, you can. You can make a financial contribution to it. You can do it for as little as $1 a month. And um, when you do, you are offered associated rewards, which are all on the Patreon website. So if you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com and, uh, and click on the Patreon link, you can see how you can sign up there. And uh, when you do make a financial contribution to the website, uh, to, or to the podcast, I should say, um, you will become a lifelong member, a very honourable position, a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. It doesn't get 
any bigger than that. The history of the world podcast, Luminati. You will be you'll be there forever. And um, well, we we get to welcome John Zamit into the history of the world podcast, Luminati, this week. And uh, obviously, we just read out his email, so uh, a double whammy for Mister Zamit there. So. Uh, well done, John, and thank you so much for helping the podcast along as you have. Now, it's also very important that if you like the History of the World podcast, then it's extremely important that you um, get involved in a lot of the interaction. So you can go to the History of the World podcast.com website yet again, and this time you click on the interact uh, link and it will send you to wonderful places there like the discussion forum um the uh the instagram page the facebook page the twitter page i think even the tiktok page is there where you can come and join me on tiktok where i'll be um dancing around to um all the songs that drive you nuts on tiktok actually you won't see me doing anything on tiktok i'm afraid other than posting pictures of uh historical locations but but that's what i'm good at i'm I'm much better at doing that than i'm uh dancing and twerking so um so don't uh don't be too scared to follow me on tiktok and um also the other thing that's worth mentioning is uh jenna osborne's uh history of the world podcast fan group if you haven't joined it already, you must be mad. You, if you, if you, uh, Facebook, uh, if you follow the History of the World podcast on Facebook, um, seriously, you need to go and uh, and apply to join the History of the World podcast fan group. Uh, there's such a level of activity that I can only dream of um, creating on on the official History of the World podcast page. Uh, that Jenna Osborne's page is a great place for interaction and, and there's so much to look at and see and she's very, very active on there and it's it's exactly what the podcast listeners need. Uh, a bit of Jenna Osborne and a bit of the History of the World podcast fan group in their lives. So go and join up now. I'm, I'm in there so I might well see you in there and um, don't delay, do it today. Anyway, we're going to wrap up for another week. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're going to be moving on to the step. Now, that's going to be very good because uh, if you like um, all this uh, fantastic barbarian stuff that we uh, that we stumbled across with the Celts last week, then you're going to love the Scythians. And that's going to be our subject for next week. So until then, uh, we'll look forward to meeting up again and Please don't forget to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us